I have a vivid memory from just about 24 years ago when Debbie and I took our then children to the Goose Fair with our friends Tom and Helen. And although it's supposed to be a treat for the kids, there was a ride which Tom was keen that he and I would go on. It was a slingshot, reverse bungee ride. And if you're not familiar with what that is, it had two steel girders, extendable cranes, about 70 feet tall, right in the middle of the site there. And between them, suspended, was a little double seat on an elastic bungee cord. So we paid our money. Tom and I were strapped into these seats with the seat anchored to the ground. And then what we thought were already hugely tall cranes just extended right up to full height, um, getting the bungee cord to full tension, and then it let go. And so we accelerated towards the sky with some considerable G-force, reached somewhere around 80 feet, and stopped momentarily, completely weightless, at which point we then went into free fall towards the rapidly approaching ground, rolling as we did so on this loose bungee. And as we were about to hit the floor, we then decelerated, our internal organs wrenched within us, and were once again propelled back towards the sky, up and down, and then rolled again at the top and began our fall up and down. And so just to give you a feel, if you've never done that, for the experience, there are a lot of videos online, if you just put in slingshot videos. And um, they vary how people react, some of whom just pass out, and then it's really amusing to see them actually regain consciousness. So this one I'm going to show you is fairly typical. And with the volume on low so that you're not unduly alarmed, okay, this is one of the examples. Now, of course, thank you for that. Yeah, unlike the individuals on those slingshot videos, Tom and I were super chilled and uh, <laughs> were very cool, calm, and collected throughout the ride. <laughs> After we bounced up and down again a few times too many, they then hauled us back towards terra firma and we staggered out of our seats feeling thoroughly nauseous. That experience went from being on top of the world with a brief but amazing view of Nottingham, to being at the bottom of the valley with our innards churning. That perhaps is a rather extreme picture of what some of our lives feel like. I hope you'll remember that picture and remember what I talk about today. We may experience times of elation when our circumstances are going really well, followed by awful devastation as life deals us a blow. And we can so easily fall victim of circumstance. When things are going really well, we're up. When they go badly, we're down. And some of us fluctuate wildly between these two extremes, depending on the circumstances that we may find ourselves in. And yet, we probably all know people whose lives seem to be marked not by the absence of life's elating and devastating experiences, which are common to us all, but by their remarkable steadiness 
in the midst of them. The apparent equilibrium they evidence as they go through extreme experiences. And we would do well to ask, what is their secret? Which of us doesn't want to live a more resilient life, which can handle the ups and the downs without the sickening feeling of living from one extreme to the next? Today I want to look at two people whose lives are described in some detail in the Bible and draw out and contrast how they dealt with situations when they went really well and then situations when they went badly. The two individuals we'll look at today are the first two kings of Israel. We're going back about 3,000 years. And their stories are recorded for us, especially in the books of Samuel and Chronicles and Kings in the Old Testament. So Israel's first king was Saul. As is the case for every person, there were times when things went really well for Saul, and there were times when they didn't. And it's fascinating to see how he tended to handle both types of circumstance. Israel uh, was often in punch-ups with surrounding tribes, especially tribes attacking them. And their main enemies throughout their history were the Amalekites. Some of you may remember the story in Exodus 18 of the Amalekites attacking the people of Israel. And as Joshua led the Israelites to defend themselves, Moses held his arms up, assisted by a couple of others, as he overlooked the battlefield. That was a battle against the Amalekites. And in that text, Moses said this in Exodus 17, 16. Because hands were lifted up against the throne of the Lord, the Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. A few hundred years later, Saul was leading the Israelites in battle against this tribe, the Amalekites. And he was told by Samuel, the prophet, that he was not only to fight them, but destroy all their belongings rather than allowing the soldiers to bring any plunder home, which would have been the normal practice in those days. And with God's help, they won the battle, but Saul allowed the soldiers to keep some of the plunder and the animals being disobedient to God. And then we read this, 1 Samuel 15, 12. Early in the morning, Samuel, the prophet, got up and went to meet Saul, but he was told Saul has gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honor. He's not gone to Carmel to set up an altar in the Lord's honor. He's gone there to set up a monument in his own honor. And when he got to him, Samuel rebuked Saul on God's behalf for his arrogance, saying this, Although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And went on to say in verse 23, arrogance is like the evil of idolatry. You're being arrogant, Saul. It's like the evil of idolatry. Now, idolatry is worshiping something or someone other than God. And arrogance or pride is essentially worshiping oneself. What is the middle letter in the word pride? First service were rather quicker than that. Thank you. <laughs> pride is being I-centered. In his arrogance, Saul had taken credit for something that he'd only achieved with the help of the Lord, even going so far as to build a monument to himself. So when things went really well for Saul, he fell into pride. Any of us relate to that? When we do something well, when we achieve some great victory in our whatever sphere of influence that might be, maybe in our career, maybe within the church, maybe in our circle of friends, 
When we've excelled in the use of our gifts and talents and we feel on top of the world, pride can rise. I'm pretty good at this, we think. It may be that something great has been achieved as you've put your gifts and talents to work and it's not necessarily a bad thing to recognize the particular way that God might use us, but we need to be mindful that without God entrusting those gifts and talents to us, we'd have achieved nothing of any value. The Apostle Paul, whose letters are preserved for us in the, in the Bible, exhorts followers of Jesus to be careful not to be too full of ourselves. And in Romans 12, verse 3, he writes this, Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. Just in the cold light of day, be real. Not thinking too highly of yourself, not thinking too lowly of yourself, but in humility, accepting who you are. The word humility, which is the opposite of pride, comes from the root word from which we get hummus or hummus. I'm not talking about the delicious chickpea dip, okay, here. But what happens when a compost heap is allowed to compost, over time it becomes hummus, which is a rich soil we would put on the garden. Humility is earthiness, being down to earth and thinking of ourselves as we should not as any better or any worse than we are. But evidently here with King Saul, he did think of himself more highly than he should have. And with the great victory against the Amalekites, he fell into pride. Now, pride is based on a lie. Do you know what that lie is? I am alone. I'm alone. So when things go well, I'm alone in my success. I did this. I deserve the credit. When things went well for Saul, we find him taken in by this lie, forgetting that it was God who had given him the victory over the Amalekites. The prophet Hosea describes what we so easily do. So Hosea is speaking on behalf of God. He says this, when I fed them, they were satisfied. When they were satisfied, they became proud and they forgot me. Just like Saul, when God gave him victory, he was thrilled and then became proud and effectively forgot God. So what about things uh, when they went badly for Saul? How do we see him responding there? Well, later on in his reign, things were really not going well for him. One of his servants, David, excels as a military leader, and rather than enjoy the fact that he had such an incredible person on his team, this person serving him, working for him, Saul was threatened by David, whose success and popularity were outshining his. And Saul became so insecure and angry that on more than one occasion he actually hurled a spear at David with intent to kill him. When things went badly for Saul, he became desperately insecure. Again, anyone relate to that feeling? There have been many times over the past 36 years of my being a pastor where I've had seasons where I've felt stretched and stressed, even afraid because of circumstances, when things have not worked out as I might have hoped, when the pressure of workload has threatened to overwhelm me, when I didn't have the time or the energy or the skill to do what needed to be done, when I've been criticized by others for failing their expectations, and sometimes I've been tempted to think, I can't do this. Do I really have what it takes to meet the expectations of these people who look to me to be a competent leader? 
Now, though your experience may be very different from mine, I trust most of you can relate to the temptation for insecurity to crowd in. And insecurity is based on the same lie as pride is, that we're alone. I'm alone in my failure. I'm alone facing this huge challenge. And both of those lies are wrong. I'm alone in my success and my good circumstances. That leads to pride. I'm alone in my failures and my bad circumstances, and that leads to insecurity. Most people, including many Christians, have a tendency to experience both pride and insecurity, depending on the circumstance that they're in. And as circumstances vary, to find themselves swinging from one to the other, going from the dizzy heights at the highest point of the reverse bungee ride to hurtling towards the gut-wrenching experience near the ground. Some people spend more time in pride. Some spend more time in insecurity, but both are present in every human being. Dig around in a person, a proud person, and you will definitely find insecurity. And vice versa. If you dig around in an insecure person, you'll find pride. Now, I realize this illustration I'm about to show you will appeal to some of you more than others, but this is how my brain works. And I started drawing and scribbling, and then somebody very helpfully animated this for us. So I found it very helpful to plan out life graphically, okay? So if the horizontal axis represents time, and the vertical axis above the line represents times when really positive things are happening, and below the line represents times when things, life is going badly, the line that we're about to draw represents what happened to Saul and can so easily happen to us. Things are going well for us and we become proud. Things go badly and we plummet into insecurity until our circumstances pick up and we go again in the direction of pride. You see that? That's a lot like that bungee ride, up and down, up and down uh, at the Goose Fair. Now, Saul was spiritually immature. He knew God. Uh, he was a highly capable and anointed leader, but he just didn't have the spiritual equilibrium that his successor did. Many of us can relate, perhaps, to times of being like Saul, or we can think of others who seem to live life as though they were on that reverse bungee ride, just fluctuating from pride to insecurity with each experience that life throws at them. Now let's have a look at David, Saul's successor. David, who wrote many of the Psalms which revealed his journey, seems to have grasped what was needed to prevent this pride insecurity swing. When things went well in David's life, it's not pride we see. David wasn't a victim of the lie that Saul fell to. David knew that he wasn't alone. God was intimately involved at every point. He was intimately involved in his successes. And David was in touch with dependence on God. We see this, for instance, in Psalm 9, verse 3. My enemies turn back, they stumble and perish, which is similar to Saul's experience of victory in battle. You know, I'm doing well as the leader of this mighty army, like Saul beating the Amalekites. But let's just read that again, including the end of David's sentence. Psalm 9, verse 3. My enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before you. 
not before me and my armies, but before you, Lord. He's addressing God. He says this, for you have upheld my right and my cause, sitting enthroned as the righteous judge. You have rebuked the nations and destroyed the wicked. You have blotted out the name forever and ever. Endless ruin has overtaken my enemies. You have uprooted their cities. Sounds a bit gruesome, doesn't it? But we're going back 3,000 years to a time when people were having punch-ups all over the place. Unlike Saul, who was once small in his own eyes but later became puffed up with pride, we see, for example, in 1 Chronicles 17, verse 16, King David went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, Lord God, and what is my family that you've brought me this far? Despite the fact that he was the greatest king in Israel's history, David never lost touch with the knowledge that his successes were not down to him. He knew that he was not alone and that the Lord was involved in his circumstances, in his successes, in his achievements, and as a result, pride was not the issue because he remained aware of his dependence on God. When life went badly, David didn't become insecure. Rather, he got in touch with confidence in God. In Psalm 27, David describes a situation which would make most people feel thoroughly insecure. So this is Psalm 27, verse 2. When the wicked advance against me to devour me, though an army besiege me, though war break out against me. Well, you know, that's, that's pretty heavy, isn't it? If we were in his shoes, how many of us here might feel rather insecure? But let's just read the full wording of those verses. When the wicked advance against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. Why? Because as David wrote in the preceding verse, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? And a few verses later on, I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. So let's return to our graph, okay? This line depicting Saul's life up and down like the bungee catapult ride. Whereas pride is based on I am alone, I'm alone in my success, dependence in the Lord pulls down pride and levels out the mountains. Whereas insecurity is based on I'm alone, I'm alone in my difficulty. The knowledge that we're not alone leads to tremendous confidence in the Lord. And this confidence lifts insecurity. The valleys are no longer the gut-wrenching lows like Saul experienced. Confidence lifts us out of that place of potential despair. And of course, all of us will go through these different seasons in life, times when we're celebrating, times when we're grieving, when things are hard. What I'm talking about here is the extreme fluctuation between the two. And as you can see, living as David did enables a much steadier life, recognizing that whether things are going well or badly, we are never alone. God is intimately involved with us, and so we don't need to hurtle up and down with every swing of circumstance. And while none of us will ever live a life which is completely like flat and plain sailing, if we grasp this truth, the fluctuations can be minimized and we can live lives of spiritual 
equilibrium. My observation as I thought about the lines I was drawing and so on is that many of us tend to do the very opposite of what David did. When circumstances seem dire and we experience insecurity, that's often actually when we get in touch with dependence and we cry out to God for help. When circumstances go well, we tend to get proud and we walk around confident and dependence goes out the window. David had it right. He had it the other way around. When things went well, he got in touch with dependence on God. And when things went badly, he got in touch with confidence that the Lord would enable him to get through. As I look at... uh, As God looks at my life, my own life, or the life of any one of you, I imagine him saying, how am I going to help John to realize that he's not alone? To not fall into pride when things go well. To not forget that I'm involved in his situation. Perhaps, this is me imagining what the Lord might say, I'll do so by orchestrating events such that John will remember me. Perhaps I'll allow his life to get hard for a bit so that he'll focus back on me. And as I lead him through the hard times, he will realize he's not alone. Establishing a habit of realizing his dependence on me, this is God speaking, will not only prevent him falling into self-sufficient pride, but also promote confidence when times are tough. It's like the Lord says, I want you to be dependent on me. I can use you more when you're awareness, you know, you're aware of your weaknesses and your limitations. And this stops the graph going too high because we realize that we're dependent on God. And it stops the graph going too low because we realize we can be confident in him. And that will bring a steadiness rather than the erratic ups and downs of the goose fair reverse bungee catapult. Now we may find ourselves thinking, well, I like what David experienced. I don't want what Saul experienced. And so, what was David's secret? Like, how was he so in touch with dependence and confidence? As I've read the scriptures and asked the Lord what we can do to cultivate knowing that we're not alone, what is evident as one reads the life of Saul or David is that David had an interior life with God, which Saul apparently did not develop. David meditated on the scriptures. He wrote at least... The 78 Psalms which were attributed to him, he probably wrote many more. He writes in Psalm 42 of his soul panting for God as a thirsty deer pants for streams of water. He evidently had a great devotional life. He lived very aware of the Lord's involvement in his life day to day. As I reflected on what it was in particular which evidences his awareness and which itself actually continually reminded him that he was not alone, I believe this is the major key. Thankfulness. David spent much of the Psalms expressing his thanks and praise and exhorting others to do the same. For example, in Psalm 100 verse 4, give thanks to him and praise his name. I haven't gone to the effort of checking the exact number of times he uses the words thanks and praise in the Psalms that he wrote, but the words thanks appear about 26 times and the word praise occurs over 180 times in the book of Psalms. Thankfulness and praise permeated David's relationship with God. So what about us? We could, like David, read the Bible, 
more, we could pray more, we would do well also to spend time with other Christians who will, on the one hand, be more sober in their judgment of us. They're not going to be that impressed because they realize we're pretty normal, you know, when things are looking good. And on the other, will encourage us when life is not going well. But I believe that practicing thankfulness is a major key to promoting dependence and confidence in our lives. We find this theme peppered through the letters of the New Testament. For example, in Ephesians 5.20, Paul exhorts us to always give thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Like, always give thanks for everything. That's a lot, isn't it? Or in 1 Thessalonians 5.12, to pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances. Thankfulness increases our awareness of dependence on God when things are going well. It reminds us that we're not alone. It's because of God's involvement that we're in this position. He's in control, not us. And it increases our awareness of confidence when things are not going well because, again, we realize we are not alone. It's because of God's involvement that we can be confident in this situation. Again, he is in control and we don't have to be. We would do well to spend time thanking him, to, as words of a song say, count our blessings one by one and see what the Lord has done, whether life is good or whether life is not so good. When we're thanking him for what he's done for us, we're less likely to take the credit for the good times, for the successes. When we're thanking him for what he has done for us, despite life circumstances, we realize we're not alone and he will be there for us. As we apply this to our own lives, we may be able to think of some things maybe that have gone well in just the last few weeks. Thank you, Lord, for the way that went. And we may also be able to think of recent or current times when we've felt stretched and life is just on top of us. Thank you, Lord, that you're with me. You will not drop me. You will give me what I need. Thank you that I'm not alone. This is the reality for those of us who have committed our lives our lives to following Jesus. We are invited by God to walk every moment knowing that God is true to his word. Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. That is a tremendous security. We are not alone. Some of you may not yet be in a relationship with God where you know that to be true for you. Some of you have not committed your life to following Jesus and in a moment it's a great opportunity today to take that step. In a moment, there'll be an opportunity to respond to that invitation and and then to join others who might come up the front here and have someone pray for you. Uh, I think Debbie will probably lead you in a prayer prior to that, but have someone pray for you as you begin this next stage of your life in relationship with God. Wherever you are on your journey of faith, I'd encourage you to make thankfulness a hallmark of your life. Never forgetting that you are not alone. God is with you. He is intimately interested in every circumstance that you face. Stay in touch with him and know the confidence that whatever life throws at you, you can depend on him to get you through it.